bow your heads with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we are eternally grateful for all of your many gifts and blessings. And Father, we pray now that as we open the blessing of your word, that it would teach us what we need to hear, that you would give us ears to listen anew and eyes to see what perhaps we've missed over the years. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to begin just with reading the text, and then we're going to unpack it, and then you're going to see how it will all begin to make sense. So here's what it says. This is Paul writing to this church in Colossae, and it says this. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed. Now, if you are reading this for the first time, if this is something new, or even if you've been in church for a while, this is very dense and very heavy theological language. All right, so this isn't just something you can read and say, okay, I completely understand all of it. And some of you may be at the point where you can do that. But what I want us to do is to unpack why this passage is important to us and what it means for us as we live in 2016. So that very beginning part, it says, since you have been raised with Christ. What Paul is talking about here is baptism. When he writes about baptism, and we all, we all have seen probably baptisms or we know about them, where um, someone, you know, usually we go up to the baptistry up top and we're both standing wearing some sort of choir-looking robes and we sit up there and then I say, I baptize you, and then we dunk them, we immerse them in water, and then they come up out of the water. What that is doing, it's not that it's washing your sins away because our sins are forgiven and washed away by Christ at the cross. But what that is doing is it's symbolically, you are symbolically, as you go into the water, dying just as Jesus died. And when you come out of the water, what it symbolizes is that you are now entering a new life. The Bible calls it a, you're entering into the newness of life. And for some of you who have been baptized, you'll say, well, it's not that it feels different. It doesn't really feel different. You don't instantly become perfect and now you don't do anything bad or you're not sinful. But rather what we know is that it is an initiation. It's an initiation into a new way of living where you no longer want to live just for yourself, but you want to live to give honor and glory to God. And a part of how we do that is by serving and loving others. Now here's what's important about this. What happens in baptism is you are no longer living the, the life that you once lived, but you are now vicariously living with the gift of grace that Jesus has given us. Like I said, remember I said this is like deeply dense theological language? It'll get easier in a couple of seconds, okay? So bear with me. But what he's saying is that through baptism, as you are resurrecting with Christ, remember when Jesus is raised from the dead, he is now living a new kind of life. He still has his body because remember the Bible tells us that when he showed his disciples his hands, there were still holes, piercings in his hands from where he was nailed to the cross. So he's still living a very human experience, but now he is somehow, as the Bible tells us, seated at the right hand of God. Now here's what's important. 
if I ask you, where is heaven, what are you, you going to say? Like, what is our normal, like, like, what do we do with our hand? Like, yeah, up. But what happens to the people on the other side of the globe? Like, <laughs> down. It doesn't make sense. Okay, so it's okay if it doesn't make sense because if we could understand fully everything about God, then God wouldn't be God. So there still has to be some mystery about how God is, where God lives, you know, and how he works or how God works. But for the first century writers, the people that were writing the Bible, they understood the world in three tiers or three levels. They understood that God is up, and if God is up, then up is heaven and up is good. So God is from above and he comes down. So that's the top tier. The middle tier is earth. Now, I know there's still some people who believe the earth is flat. I get that, but I don't know what to say. <laughs> so if you're one of those, we love you. Please come back. <laughs> Okay, there's like, there should be a disclaimer in the bulletin. Pastor's jokes aren't always funny and they don't always make sense. Like, you know. Yeah. So then there's the middle tier, which is earth, which is where we're living right now, which is what we can see, feel, and touch. And so the earth, it's not that it's good, but it's not bad. It's just like where everything plays out of earth's history. And then, so if God is up and heaven is good and it's above, then where is the devil and hell? Again, remember, that breaks down because we live on a sphere and right? So they, but that's how they understood it. If God is above, then the devil and hell and evil must be below somewhere deep far into the earth, right? So that's how they understood the world. So when Paul says that Jesus has now ascended and he is now sitting at the right hand of God, he is, he is saying that Jesus is with God in God's presence, and as a result of that, because you have accepted Jesus into your life, you and your life is hidden in Christ. Now, that's very weird theological language. And trust me, when I, was, when I was trying to find a way to explain what does it mean to be hidden in Christ, it was really quite not, it, it just wasn't easy to do. So here's the best that I can do, and I'm going to do it through a story and then see if it works. I think I've told it before. I have an older brother who's seven years older than me, and he is smarter more diligent, uh, more disciplined, more hardworking, like all of the qualities that I'm not, like he's all of the best of all of those things, okay? So when he was in high school, he got straight A's, like in everything, right? And for some of you, you're like, yeah, our kids got straight A's too. Well, like, okay, but yeah, we're immigrant family, right? <laughs> he was the first one. <laughs> but he got straight A's in everything for all four years. Every single year, there's an organization, I think it's the Rotary Club, they would honor the kids that were in, like, I think, is it the top, like, 12th percentile or 12th, 5 percent? I can't remember what it is. But you have to be, like, the top of the top each class, and they would have, like, a dinner for you, and then they would present you with a certificate. And, it, and my brother had it framed, and so for every year in high school, he had certificates that he was a part of the uh, Rotary Club. He graduated with honors. Like, all the stuff parents are proud of, right? Like, he did that. So seven years later, I come to high school. I didn't get any of those awards, none. I don't, I don't know where I was, right? I just missed it by a point, I think, but <laughs> that's a joke. You don't know. <laughs> so I get there, and, I, and there were still a lot of the same teachers that were there. And so when they saw my name, I don't have a very uh, common last name, and so they said, oh, Segura. They're like, hey, we had your brother in class. We hope that, um, you know, we look forward to you being, in a sense, as smart and good as your brother was. And I was like, geez, thanks. Like, I, it's not going to happen, trust me. Like, on a good day, you know, I'll get close to it. 
But that's the best story that I, could under, that I could share with you what it means to be hidden in Christ is when these teachers saw me, it was not really about what I could achieve on my own or what I had achieved. But they had imputed on me, that's such a Bible word, they had, uh, they had accepted that I would be just like my brother was because if we come from the same family, then we must share a lot of the same qualities. And so, in a sense, my identity was hidden in my brother because of how good he had done things seven years before. So when we talk about being hidden in Christ, God doesn't see you for your failures and your mistakes. He doesn't see you for your being um, laid off, being fired. He doesn't see you for your divorces. He doesn't see you for your debt. He doesn't see you for all the mistakes you've made, but rather what God sees in you isn't your mistakes, but he sees that you have accepted Jesus, and what he sees is the perfect person of Jesus and how he has gone before you and has already accomplished the forgiveness of your sins, and as a result, he now gives you this new kind of life. Now, let me tell you, when these professors told me that they hoped that I would be as smart as my brother was, what did that do in me? Did it make me resentful? No, it didn't to me anyway. What I did is I wanted to make that image of who they had of my brother, I wanted to live up to that as much as I could. And so sometimes our Christian life is a lot like that. Because Jesus has forgiven us and because Jesus has assured us that we are given a new life in baptism as we come out of the water, we now want to live our lives in such a way, not, to, not, not so that we don't disappoint God, but so that we can be in Christ and say, hey, we are, made, you know, we are a part of the same family and Jesus who has gone before us, we are also living into his person. Does that, does that make sense? Kind of? You guys are kind of, kind of getting, it, getting it there, right? So not only that, Paul not only says it here, but in another verse he says that because you have accepted Jesus, and, and when the Bible says when you are in Christ, it means that you've accepted Jesus, Paul says that you are a new creation. Now, when you buy a new car, and it's a bad analogy, but it's going to have to work. When you buy a new car... Is it your old car and you just paint over it? Or do you actually get rid of your old car and you go and you buy a new car? Right? That's an that's a easy question. It's rhetorical. Yes, it's a brand new car. So when the Bible writers say that you are now a new creation in Christ, it doesn't mean that you are just going to be a better version of your old self. It doesn't mean you're just going to go and get a haircut or get new clothes. It doesn't mean that you are just going to repair yourself and then be better. No, when the Bible writers say that you are a new creation, what it's saying is that your identity and who you are and your value and your worth is now brand new when you accept Jesus. It's not about how good you've been. It's not about all the mistakes and all the sins that you've committed. But when you accept Jesus, you are now a new creation. I think, and so what's important is that as new creatures or as part of being this new creation, we now must live by a completely different standard than the way that we were living before. It is about being a part of the family of God where we are supposed to 
treat each other better and more loving and more caring and more forgiving. You see, churches are, the, are supposed to be the place where you should, and I hardly ever use the word should, okay? But churches are the places that should be where we begin to get glimpses of what heaven will be like. I understand, I've been a pastor for 10 years, that in churches it doesn't always play out that way. But part of being the community of faith and a community of people who follow Jesus, we must continually strive to live to the standard that Jesus wants for us. So perhaps a better way of saying what this really thick and dense theological language we've been going through, perhaps a better way of saying that is to let us think about God and ourselves and our relationships. So in others, how we see others, those that we agree with and those we disagree with, that we need to see everyone through the lens of how Jesus viewed and treated other people from what we can see from the Bible. So, yeah, from the Bible, of course, everyone knows that. But so many times, as a pastor, I hear people make statements about Jesus or about God or about how we must treat each other. And then I'll say, well, where is that? Like, well, I don't know where, that, where you get that. And they're like, oh, no, I know it's in the Bible somewhere. And I'm just like, I, I, I don't know which Bible that one is. You know, it's not just, and this is where, this is where, being raised in Christ, being a new creation, and now it says to seek the things that are above, and that's Bible code words for saying, try to live and see the world through the eyes of Jesus. And it's not just about always being right. It's not just about telling people what the Bible says and saying, see, so you're wrong, so you're out. But rather, and I think I have a quote up here, Christian speech... So when we talk as Christians, is not determined solely by whether it is true or false, but by whether it helps or harms another. So you see, you could be a Christian and you can have all the right answers, but if you're hurtful, if you're causing harm to other people, if you're being a jerk about it, then it's not Christian speech. But you have to ask yourselves, is what I'm saying to someone helpful or hurtful? And what's important to understand is it's not so much what you're saying, it's how you say what you're saying. Because there are different ways to say the same exact thing. Isn't that true? And so as a Christian and as followers of Jesus, it's not just about telling people what's true. It's about telling people what's true, but doing so in a loving and kind way, in a way that takes them into consideration, because what's important isn't just about being right, but about continuing to draw people closer to Jesus. And we know, and you know, that if you have been told you are wrong for doing something, and they do it in a way that is not nice, does that make you say like, oh, hey, thank you so much. You know what? I'm going to go pray now and ask Jesus for forgiveness. No, what does that do? It makes you want to fight the other person. I'm not physically, right? But maybe physically. But it makes you want to argue. It makes you want to engage. So you see, your role as a Christian is to speak to people in a way that is patterned after the way of Jesus. See, words don't merely convey a message but oftentimes words can make things so irrevocable, what is the word I use? Irrevocable. In other words, sometimes when you say words, 
You can say you're sorry after them, but you can ask your husband or ask your wife. You can say you're sorry, but does it really take the sting away from the words that are said? No. Like, it's like three months later and you still remember the thing that he said. Because that's how human beings are. Words are powerful and words do hurt more than sticks and stones ever could. And so when we think about what it means to seek the things that are above and how that shapes our interactions with each other and how that shapes how we live, I think the right question to ask is, how would Jesus go about doing this? You know, it's funny, and and the reason this is all going to make sense right now, when Jesus, you know, we think of Jesus as being our, our, obviously our Savior and Son of God, but we also think of Jesus as being this magnificent teacher. But if you go through through the four Gospels in the New Testament, what you find is that you don't find Jesus just teaching people, but when he is engaged by people, what does Jesus do? Does he tell them they're wrong? No, what is his mode of, of conversation with people? He always asks questions. That's all Jesus does when people try to come after him and attack him. And so instead of Jesus engaging, all he really does is he just asks more questions, oftentimes frustrating the people that are trying to attack him. How would your relationships change if you learned to ask more questions instead of jumping into an argument and trying to get your point across? To live as Jesus would have lived, to set your mind on the things that are above, is to break with the standard way of how things are done on earth and say, I want to live heavenly now. You see, to put or to seek the things that are above is a biblical and Paul's way of saying that, hey, you want to get to heaven, right? And you want to live into eternity all your life, right? Well, what if you could begin to live like it's then, but live it right now? Does that make sense? Did I say that right? Live as though you are already living in heaven. Let that be the standard of what Christians, how they must live their lives. Here's another way and a better way of understanding what it means to be hidden in Christ and to be more like him. If you've ever been in a relationship, if you are in a relationship, and I can like point some of this out in people, the longer that you are in a relationship with someone, the more you become like that person. Isn't that true? You begin to say the same kind of words. You begin to laugh at the same kinds of jokes sometimes. Um, you begin to like the same kinds of foods, you begin to like a lot of the same things, and what ends up happening is when you're in a relationship, you kind of become like the other person. And what Paul is arguing for here is that instead of us just trying to be right and telling people what's right, we need to focus more on the union between ourselves and God. It is about spending more and more time in God's presence because the more we spend in God's presence, the more we will become like Jesus. See, Christians aren't called just to escape this world, but we are called to be obedient to God within this world, allowing the transcendent dimensions where Christ reigns to set the priorities of our lives. As a Christian, we shouldn't just try to escape this world, but we should do all that we can to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives. That's what it means to be hidden 
in Christ. Now, uh, we got a few more minutes, so do you mind if I keep going? <laughs> this is one of those sermons that was easy to like write because I just wrote for hours, so you'll see. Here we go. So Paul says, so Paul then, some of you who are here for the baby dedication, you're like, man, I was just here for the baby dedication. Like, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hurry up, pastor. So here's how Paul continues to explain what it means to set your mind on the things that are above. All right? And in my notes, it says judgmental people on top. So you'll see. So it says, put to death, therefore, whatever is in you that is earthly. Now, when the Bible writers talk about things that are earthly, he, it's, remember, it's, it's the things that aren't godly. So it's everything that isn't in tune and in the harmony of God's will, right? So he, he gives a list. He says, fornication, impurity, passion, like evil passion, not like being passionate about something. Um, evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. I'm going to stop there. See, some people, well, it's only Christians because I don't know other people like this. Oftentimes, people, you say, you see, Pastor, you're just trying to preach a message of love and hope and feel good. But look, Paul is telling people not to do these things. And if they do do these things, then God's wrath is going to come down on them. And some of you are like, amen, but you don't want to say it because you don't want to be that person. So let me explain to you what thousands of dollars of school loans taught me. Can we do that? When Paul writes these words about the wrath of God coming on people who are doing these things, and this is how Paul writes this, okay? And this is, the writer is Paul of this, and he's the one that writes about the wrath of God a lot in the New Testament. The wrath of God and the formula it takes is not that God is going to come down and punish you and smite you and say, see, good, now you deserve all this, right? So he's not like inflicting punishment on us like a parent does, but rather when God punishes and when God's wrath comes on people, it's that he allows the natural consequences of your sinful decisions to play out in your life, and then you have to deal with them on your own. Paul would often say of the people who are sinful, who, are not, who were not living in line with the community of faith in the first century, Paul would often say things like, you need to hand them over to the devil. Now here's what's important to understand about Paul's understanding of wrath and judgment. That when Paul talks about being handed over to the devil, it isn't so that you can then um, do whatever you want to and now you're forgotten, but rather... That when Paul uses those words, what he's actually saying, and God's wrath is always meant for redemption, by the way. So when God says, you know, or when, when Paul says, let them be handed over to your sins, or in other words, let the natural consequences of your decisions, you're going to have to live them out. The hope was that you would get to such a place where you realize, yeah, this isn't all that it was cracked up to be, and my decisions were really dumb and really bad. So now I truly do realize how good God is and how merciful God is, and I want to be in the presence of the God who is teaching me all this. That's what Paul means when he says that if you go down this path, the wrath of God is coming. Yeah, the wrath of God is that, hey, if you want to do this, all right, go for it. We'll talk again soon. 
And it's not that God is pulling away. It's that he's like, fine, you think you know better? Fine. Uh, let's go back to Genesis chapter uh, 3. Adam and Eve make decisions that they think are going to be better than what God wants. And starting from there on, the entire Bible is filled with stories of people making horrible decisions. People making decisions that leads them down paths that are very painful. And yet God always comes back to pursue. You see, what's important is that sometimes when we go down this path, the pain that we feel is not God, God forcing you that pain, but it's the natural consequences. And sometimes it's in, the, it's in that place of pain, of suffering, of discomfort, where then we realize we are open to the God that is pursuing. So you see, when you're going through these tough circumstances, I would say that don't think of it as why is God punishing me, but rather how am I bringing this on myself? And perhaps... It's an invitation for you to be open to the power of God in your life. And so we continue with, I think, one more verse. So then Paul says, But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Where else is it going to come from? Maybe because we sometimes think it. I don't know. And so the Bible says that it's not so much the thoughts that are sinful, but when we act them out. So verse 9, do not lie to another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices. Remember I said when you buy a new car, you don't just paint your car and call it new, but you actually go and buy a new one. The Christian life, when you have accepted Jesus, all of you here who have accepted Jesus, you are now new. And you're not just covering yourself up with something new, but you have ripped off your old self and you are asking to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And, and you have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. So you are being renewed by the image and knowledge of knowing Christ. And this is the last part. As God's chosen ones, what, what okay, so if you are in Christ, he calls you chosen ones. And then what's the next word after chosen ones? Holy and beloved, or holy and loved. You see, so many times we call ourselves sinners, but what does the Bible call us? Holy, chosen ones, loved. So it says, clothe yourself with what? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness and patience so you know some of you are like pastor you're soft like no it's what paul says and paul was not soft he says bear with one another and if anyone has a complaint against another what does it say forgive each other just as the lord has forgiven you so you almost must forgive this is the part that probably people they don't tell you when you accept jesus and you're so thankful that your sins are forgiven what is it? What is like a part of being forgiven and in Christ and being hidden in Christ? That you also now have to forgive other people just as you were forgiven. I think there's one last slide. Above all, I know, right? Land the plane. Oh. <laughs> Above all, clothe yourselves with love. Above all, like of most importance, the thing that matters the most is what Paul is saying. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So above all what? Love. 
because it's what holds everything together. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, the church, and be thankful. It's almost like he's scolding us, right? He was like, come on, get it together, church. You are already new. Quit having these fights and just accept that, okay, you are holy. You are chosen. You are loved. Now clothe yourself with love. Forgive one another. Move on and just begin to experience a glimpse of what heaven can be like. Okay, so this continues, but I'm not going to continue. I think that's the perfect place to end. So when we started this very dense theological conversation about rising in Christ and being hidden in Christ, it's that you've already been given assurance of your salvation. The word is justified. You have been made right. Your debts have been forgiven. Because of that, God wants us to set our minds on the things that are in the mind of Christ. Because if we do that, remember, all of this isn't just for your own well-being. But the reason that you are chosen and you are called and you are holy isn't just so you can feel good about being a part of the club, but it's so that you can be a witness of God's love to everywhere you go. This isn't just about you feeling good. This is about how you can change and shape the life of the people that are around you just by being a little bit of reflection of the light who is Christ. So be a new creation accept it and embrace it let us pray heavenly father we are this is a really tough message for a lot of us god because it's so much easier for us to focus on our old self it's so much easier to be hung up on our sins and our mistakes my prayer for my friends here this morning is that you would break and shatter those evil thoughts in our minds that you would teach us and show us what it looks like to be this new creation. Help us not to dwell in our past, Lord, but please teach us how to live as heavenly as possible now, not just for our own good, but so that through us you might be able to minister to others. In your name we pray. Amen.